In today's culture of convenience, it's easy to get frustrated when a problem persists. Instead of a quick fix, maybe what you really need is courage. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah continues his series, Courage to Conquer, with a look at some of the reasons God might allow you to experience difficulties. Listen as David introduces today's message, Courage When Frustration Distresses You. And thank you for joining us today. We're talking about courage. Uh, I think that's uh, a good place for us to be because there's a little dip in courage right now. We've been kind of beat and battered, and 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 uh, I know a lot of people are discouraged. So what do you do when you're discouraged? You find courage. And courage comes from your relationship with God, and your relationship with God is, well, it's made to work through your involvement with the Scripture. And that's what we're doing. We're taking you to some courage infusions from the Word of God. We've already looked at Psalm 34 and Romans 8 today. We turn our Bibles uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through 10. When we get started, you'll remember these verses. And we're so excited that you've joined us for this third major lesson in this series of eight uh, for the month of February. The kingdom of God is full of paradoxes, as you know. We get by giving, we live by dying, we find strength and weakness. Avoiding pain is part of the culture we live in. Embracing pain is seen as masochistic, if not foolish. But God says, is it in our weakness, when we are weak, that we find true strength. And we're going to talk about that today and tomorrow, how we find strength in our weakness, how frustration can actually lead us to a deeper relationship with God. During the month of February, we want to enhance your library and your life with a book by Rob Morgan. The book is entitled The Jordan River Rules. Obviously, it's based on that passage of Scripture. Ten chapters with principles that are derived out of that story. And these principles are life-changing. You will be so blessed and encouraged to begin to implement these principles in your life in this new year. And we'd love to send this book to you. It's our way of saying thank you for your investment in the ministry of Turning Point. Uh, the book has as its subtitle, 10 God-Given Strategies for Moving Forward. And we want to send it to you when you send your gift of any size to Turning Point during this shortest month of the year, the month of February. So don't wait. Sit down today and get involved investing in what God is doing here. If Turning Point is making a difference in your life, here's a chance for you to say that in a tangible way and uh, and to get something back in return that will even enhance your walk with the Lord more. So we're grateful for the opportunity to make this available, but we can't do it if you don't respond. And when you send your gift, be sure to ask for The Jordan River Rules by Rob Morgan. Here we go now with number three in the major lessons, Courage When Frustration Distresses You from Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Those of you who are golf fans remember that in the 1996 Masters Golf Tournament, Greg Norman, the white shark, had one of the most devastating experiences an athlete of any sport can ever suffer. After three rounds, Greg Norman had a virtual insurmountable six-stroke lead. Eighteen more holes of even average golf would have assured him of the Masters victory and the possession of the coveted green jacket. But the bottom fell out for Greg Norman. 
On the fourth and final day of the tournament, he shot a 78, and Nick Faldo shot a 67 to come from six shots back and win the tournament by five strokes. Obviously, Greg Norman was devastated. But a few days later, in the New York Times, writer Larry Dorman wrote this column, and this is what he said. After the debacle, the golf star says he experienced the most touching few days of his life. People from all over the world contacted him with words of encouragement. The mail ran four times the volume of what Norman received when he won the British Open in 1993. It's changed my total outlook on life and on people, Norman said of last April's defeat. There's no need for me to be cynical anymore. My wife said to me, you know, maybe this is better than winning the green jacket. Maybe now you understand the importance of it all. I never thought I could reach out and touch people like that. And the extraordinary thing is that I did it by losing. When we are weak, some of the most beautiful things in life can happen to us. That is the message that is wrapped up in the words from 2 Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. In this passage of scripture, Paul is going to help us understand what to do when frustration distresses us. And for us to get the most out of this, we need to unpack this passage kind of verse by verse and begin, first of all, with the reality of difficulty in the believer's life. In verse 7, we read, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, Paul is going to tell us about an experience in his own life that illustrates the principles that we are going to learn today. He's going to help us understand how sometimes the weakest moment we ever face in life becomes the pinnacle of our achievement as far as God is concerned. In order for us to understand this, we have to travel back a few days from this passage in the life of the Apostle Paul. This describes a moment in Paul's life when he had just had the opportunity of a heavenly experience. We don't have many details about this. There's not a lot of information about it. It's primarily in the first six verses of this chapter. In fact, if you read it carefully, you'll discover that Paul seems even reluctant to mention his own name. He says, there was a man I knew. And everybody knows he's talking about himself, but he doesn't want to mention his name. He says, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He's not even sure whether he physically experienced this or spiritually experienced it. But one thing he does know, and that is that he was given a privilege that no one had ever been given before, nor since that I'm aware of. And that is he was privileged to go to heaven and see heaven and come back to talk about it. He'd been lifted up to see the glories of God in heaven in a way that no one had ever experienced it before. And he came back with all of these visions and this revelation. I can't help but imagine what it would have been like if that had happened in our day and you were a public figure. I mean, the press agents would have gone crazy with that, would they not? Come here, a man who went to heaven and came back and lived to tell about it. Everybody would come to see this person who had had this magnificent revelation. But God took a different view of this. God's concern for Paul was that having had that experience, that heavenly experience, that it could ruin his life. 
God knew that this great exaltation and revelation could have potentially been the downfall of the apostle. So two times in this little passage, Paul says, lest I should be exalted above measure. If you read that in Eugene Peterson's The Message, it reads like this, lest I should get the big head. In other words, God allows some things in Paul's life now in order to keep his feet on the ground, in order to keep his head out of the clouds, in order to keep him from going off on the privileges that he's had of this special revelation. How many of you know that when you have some great success or you have a great experience or you're given a great privilege, sometimes if you're not careful, life gets a little bent out of shape and it's up to your parents or your partner to keep you with your feet on the ground. Well, Almighty God's following that procedure here. And so the Bible says that Paul would have been ruined by this heavenly vision. And so lest he be ruined by it, God sent him something to keep him in perspective. That's the purpose of it. Now notice the pain of it in this same verse. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Paul says that Almighty God allowed Satan to bring a thorn into his life and to buffet him with it. Now the word buffet means literally just what it sounds like. It means to get beat up. It means to be beat on. It means to be terrorized. So the Bible says Almighty God lets Satan bring this thorn in the flesh into Paul's life sort of keep him in perspective. The Greek language actually calls this thorn in the flesh a stake. He says God allowed Satan to drive a stake into my flesh. And that kind of exudes with pain just thinking about it. Now, make no mistake about it. The Christian life can be painful. Can I get a witness? Yeah, it's a little weak, but I know it deserves better than that because I know some of you, right? Sometimes God allows pain in our lives and suffering in our lives, and he extends that pain and he extends that suffering to the point of our frustration. And we ask him to remove it, and he does not. What in the world was this that happened to Paul? What was his thorn in the flesh? I need to tell you right now, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question. Some have suggested, and I rather agree that this is the best suggestion that I've seen, that Paul may have been losing his eyesight. That his eyesight before the days of ophthalmologists and all of that, that he was losing his eyesight. And we gather that idea from a couple of verses in the book of Galatians. And I just want to show them to you so you can see where I'm going with this thought process. First of all, in Galatians 6.11, at the end of the book, Paul writes to the Galatian believers and he says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Paul was the author of the first large print Bible right here. He's writing big letters. The implication is that he did that because he couldn't see very well. Now, if you go back in Galatians to the fourth chapter, you can even add a little more fuel for this concept in verses 14 and 15, where Paul writes, And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, now watch this, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Hmm. Now, with those two passages together, you know, sort of, get, well, maybe that was it. Maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh was he was losing his eyesight. Now, that would be a particularly difficult challenge for somebody who was what Paul was. He was an apostle. He was a writer. He was a preacher. So if that was the problem, that would have been significant. But it is not possible for us to know. Some people believe that Paul had some sort of epilepsy. 
William Ramsey, the great historian, said he thought Paul had malaria. And with every new book about the Apostle Paul that comes out, there's a new idea in that book about what his thorn in the flesh was. Here are some of the other suggestions I have come across. Gallstones, gout, rheumatism, sciatica, gastritis, leprosy, lice in the head, deafness, dental infection, and remorse for the tortures that he caused the church before he was saved. All of these are just guesses. None of them have any proof whatsoever. Now, I believe that it is interesting that this was left unspecified. If Paul's thorn had been identified, it would have limited the application of this passage to the particular malady which inflicted Paul. For instance, Philip Hughes writes a little paragraph about this, and listen to what he says. He said, let us suppose that Paul had supplied specific details regarding his thorn in the flesh, and that for the sake of argument, it was some particular form of epilepsy. Then subsequent generations of Christians the great majority of whom have been free from epilepsy, would have been inclined to dismiss the apostles' problem as one so remote from the reality of their own experience that they could get no benefit from this passage. By his silence as to the nature of Paul's thorn in the flesh, our Lord has made this passage meaningful to anyone who is going through any kind of trouble as a Christian. Now, how many of you have a thorn in the flesh? Well, you see... The reason why we don't have specific information here, I believe, is so that we can take these principles now and they can be applied to our own situation, whatever that might be. Now, we've seen the reality of difficulty in the believer's life. I want you to think with me now for just a moment about the reason for denial in the believer's life. Because the Bible says in verse 7 that three times Paul asked the Lord, please send this thing away from me, and the Lord didn't do it. The Lord said, Paul, I'm not going to send it away. You're going to keep it. You're going to keep your thorn in the flesh. What I'm going to do is give you something that will help you with this situation. I'm going to give you my grace and my strength. Notice the display of God's grace was one of the reasons that he was denied relief from his problem. Verses 8 and 9, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Three times God was told by Paul Lord, please send this thing away. And three times God said, I'm not going to do that, Paul. What I am going to do is send you sufficient grace to deal with your problem. Has the Lord ever done that to you? Has the Lord ever said, well, I'm not going to take that away. But I will give you the grace to deal with it. One Friday morning, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher, was speaking to his ministerial students which was something he did on a routine basis. In fact, I have a book that I treasure called The Lectures to the Students that Charles Haddon Spurgeon were some of the lectures he gave to his students when they were growing up under his tutelage. Here's what he said on that particular day. He said, there are many passages of Scripture which you will never understand until some trying experience interprets them to you. He said, the other evening I was riding home after a heavy day's work and I was wearied and depressed and swiftly and suddenly as a lightning flash, this text laid hold on me. My grace is sufficient for you. When I got home, I looked it up in the original and finally it dawned on me what the text was saying. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And I said to myself, well, I should think it is. And I burst into laughter. And it seemed to me to make unbelief so absurd. 
It was as if though some little fish being very thirsty was troubled about drinking the river dry. And Father Rivers said, drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. Or as if some little mouse in the granaries of Egypt, after seven years of plenty, feared lest it should die of famine. And Joseph said, cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. And again, I imagine a man way up in the mountain saying to himself, I fear I shall exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. But the earth cries out, breathe away, old man, and fill your lungs. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. And you see what Spurgeon said? He realized that one of the things we say when we don't get rid of the thorns and we don't get rid of the distress, well, you know, maybe God won't be able to deal with this. My friend, God is able to deal with it. His grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for me. It is like the fish to the river, the mouse to the granaries, the breathing to the entire atmosphere of the universe. So is the ratio of the grace of God to each of his children. When I was growing up, my mother used to clip out the poems written by Annie Johnson Flint. She loved Annie Johnson Flint. I didn't know very much about her at the time, except uh, since my parents have been gone, I found a couple of books where the pages are all kind of yellow now, but where she'd gone in and she'd cut out these poems out of magazines and things, and she'd taped them in the book, and she has a couple of books She had some books of the poetry of Annie Johnson Flint. Well, some of you a little older than the others are nodding your head. You know who Annie Johnson Flint is. And she wrote some great words. And one of her more famous poems goes like this. God has not promised skies always blue. Flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain. Joy without sorrow. Peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day. Rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for all trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. That's the truth of this passage. God hasn't promised you or me that we're going to sail through life with a get-home-free pass and not have any difficulty. But what God has promised is that His grace is sufficient for every need we will ever have. Amen? Amen. And many of us who've been around this thing called Christianity longer than others, we've experienced that. We know. Not only do we believe this because the Bible says it's so, we believe it because we've experienced it. We know that the grace of God is sufficient for every need you have. Now, just put that in your mental notebook. You're going to need it someday. You may not have a thorn right now. You may be just sailing along and the skies are all clear. But I promise you, and I'm not a pessimist, I promise you, you will hit the bump in the road somewhere down the way. And oh, how wise and how blessed is the Christian who's prepared for the difficulty because they know the Word of God and are able to apply the truths to their situation. Now, not only is this in order that God might display His grace in our life, He wants to display His strength too. For my strength, He says, is made perfect in weakness. The Lord told Paul that the only way he would ever experience the fullness of God's strength was to be made aware of his own weakness. Why is that? Because when we're full of our own strength, we don't understand that we need God. When we are going through powerful, positive, prosperous times, it's easy for us to forget where all the power and prosperity comes from. We think we did it. 
And so sometimes God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. A.B. Simpson, a minister from another generation, said it this way. He said, here is the secret of divine all-sufficiency, to come to the end of everything in ourselves and in our circumstances. When we reach this place, we will stop asking for sympathy because of our hard situation or bad treatment, for we will recognize these things as the very conditions of our blessing. And we will turn from them to God and find in them a claim upon him. The bumps are what you climb on. That's what he's saying. When you have these difficulties, God uses them to draw you to himself, help you to understand your dependence upon him. So we have the reality of difficulty in the believer's life. We have the reason for denial in the believer's life. And now let's notice, thirdly, the result of discipline in the believer's life. Notice verses 9 and 10. Here's what happens as the result of going through these experiences. First of all, we discover the power that is in Christ. Verse 9, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul came to understand, as he writes to us in 2 Corinthians, that his thorn in the flesh was God at work in his life. Let me say that again. The thorn was God at work in his life. You see, how does God work by virtue of a thorn? He uses the problem to make us aware of our need so that we look up instead of looking inward in our own strength. What God told Paul was this. Paul, you will not be without the grace to do your job. And you will not be without the strength to be my ambassador. But the creative difference now will be this. Your weakness will serve to magnify the glory of God in such a way that no one will ever be able again to look at you and explain you in human terms. Isn't it something to long for that kind of power? Lord God, give me such power in you that when people see me, they realize there's no way that could have come from him. That has to be God. That ought to be the prayer of every one of us here. Oh, God, do something so great in my life that when it's done, you are the only one who can get the credit for it. And when we get to the end of ourselves and we get to the end of our own strength, we begin to realize that our strength is not in us, but it comes from him. Then we can tap into the divine resource of God's power. And we begin to see God do marvelous and miraculous things in us and through us. Not only does he discover the power in Christ, but he discovers the pleasure in infirmities. This is hard for you to understand when you first read it. Verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. Now, this sort of sounds masochistic, doesn't it? Like this guy's a little weird. You mean you get joy out of infirmities and persecutions and distresses? I mean, if we had seen somebody like that today on sitcom television, we would say, well, there's an interesting twist to a program. Somebody who gets their kicks out of always being hurt. But please notice Paul says, for Christ's sake. I take pleasure in these things for Christ's sake. He says that because he understands that these are the things that make it possible for people to see the reality of Christ in his life. My friend, people don't understand the power of God in our lives when we are just sailing along and everything's good. You know where they see God's power? They see it when they watch us go through difficult times and they watch the creative difference that Jesus Christ makes in a person who is a believer and understands the truth of God's word. People look at that and they marvel. Have you noticed that? 
How do they ever get through that? How can they come through that with this sense of peace in their life? There's only one reason. There's only one explanation. It's not us. It's not our religion. It's a relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. And, you know, I keep saying this over and over again, the thing that I learned during uh, my bout with cancer many years ago was simply this, that God is enough. You, you, you can get help from others and all of that, but God is enough. He is sufficient for what we face in our lives. And that's what we're learning in this series about courage. We'll have part two of Courage When Frustration Distresses You uh, tomorrow from Second Corinthians chapter 12. In the meantime, why don't you take a moment and sit down and get involved with Turning Point by investing in what we're doing in getting the word out around the world. Turning Point is now heard on 3,000 radio stations here in America and many others across the globe. We can only do this because of your faithfulness and your sacrifice and your investment. This month when you make your gift, we want to send you Rob Morgan's book, The Jordan River Rules, 10 God-Given Strategies for Moving Forward. Yours for the asking when you send your gift today. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Courage to Conquer, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine turning points and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of Robert J. Morgan's book, The Jordan River Rules, 10 God-Given Strategies for Moving Forward. Learn how God uses crisis to prepare you for stronger days ahead. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get the details when you visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Courage to Conquer, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you're ready to move towards the promises God has given you this year, then you'll love The Jordan River Rules, written by Robert Morgan. You'll learn 10 God-given strategies for moving forward, including how to encircle obstacles with biblical faith. This encouraging hardcover is yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. And when you give $70 or more, you'll also receive The Courage to Conquer set, featuring Dr. Jeremiah's teaching series, companion study guide, and bookmark. Request yours at davidjeremiah.ca. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. Jules Renard was a 19th century French author who wrote in a very humanistic fashion. 
but I find one of his observations insightful. He wrote, The reward of great men is that long after they have died, one is not quite sure that they are dead. He's talking, of course, about one's legacy, that part of us that lives on past our death. Legacies take many forms. Our children represent our legacy to the next generation, as can our work and our ministry for Christ. It is worth considering, what am I doing now that will continue to bear fruit into eternity? This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's ways to leave a lasting legacy on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.